Chapter 3 of Nature's Miracles Familiar Talks on Science, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording, and all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Don Evans Familiar Talks on Science by Elisha Gray Chapter 3 Coal Sometime long ago, some man made the discovery that what we now call coal would burn and produce light and warmth. Who he was, or how long ago he lived, we do not know. But as all earthly things have a beginning, we know that such a man did live, and that the discovery that coal would burn was made. Coal, in the sense that we use the word here, is not mentioned in the scriptures. According to some authorities, coal was used in England as early as the ninth century. It is recorded that in 1259, King Henry III granted a privilege to certain parties to mine coal at Newcastle. It is further stated that seven years after this time, coal became an article of export. In 1306, coal was so generally used in London that a petition was sent to Parliament to have the use of it suppressed on the ground that it was a nuisance. Coal was used in Belgium, however, about 1200. There is a tradition that a blacksmith first used it in Liège as fuel. It was first used for manufacturing purposes about 1713. Coal is found laid down in great veins varying in thickness in various parts of the world, in the upper strata of the Paleozoic period. The age in which it was formed is called by geologists the Carboniferous, or Coal-Bearing Age. Before going on to account for the deposits of coal, let us stop a moment and consider what it is. Chemists tell us that coal is chiefly constructed of carbon, compounded with oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. There are many varieties, but all may be classified under two general headings, bituminous and anthracite. Bituminous coal contains a large amount of a tarry substance, a kind of mineral pitch, or bitumen, which burns with a brilliant flame and a black, sooty smoke, exceedingly rich in carbon. Anthracite coal is hard and stone-like in its texture, burning with scarcely any flame and no smoke. It produces a fire of intense heat when it is once ignited. There is another form of coal called cannel coal, which is a corruption of candle coal, so-called because a piece of this kind of coal, when ignited, will burn like a match or pine knot and give light like a candle. This is the richest of all the coal deposits in gases that are set free by heat, and for this reason is extensively used in the manufacture of what is commonly called coal gas. England produces a large amount of cannel coal as well as another variety of bituminous coal, which, latter, however, does not burn with such a black smoke as the coal found in the Ohio Valley and the western states of America. East of the Allegheny Mountains there is a region of anthracite coal that is very extensively worked and finds great favor in all parts of the country as fuel for domestic heating, especially on account of its great cleanliness. All of the coal beds have a common origin and the difference in the quality of coal found in different parts of the country 
is due to many circumstances, some of which have never been explained. There is indisputable proof, however, that all coal beds are of vegetable origin. Geologists tell us that these coal beds were formed during an age before the earth had cooled down to the temperature that it has at the present time, an age when vegetation was forced by the internal heat of the earth, instead of having to receive all its warmth from the sun's rays as we do now. Some of our readers are familiar with what is commonly termed a hotbed. A hotbed is made by putting soil on top of substances that will ferment and create heat underneath the soil. This heat from beneath will force vegetation and cause a much larger growth than there will be if left to the sun's rays alone. During the Carboniferous Age, the earth was a great hotbed. The fossils of trees and plants, as well as reptiles, that we find in the great coal measures of the world, show that they were of large tropical growth, and this is shown not only in the temperate zone, but in the zone farther north. For ages and ages this rank growth of vegetation grew up and fell down until a great layer of vegetable matter was formed, which at a later time was covered over by other stratifications of earth material, so that these great layers of vegetable formation were hermetically sealed and pressed down by an enormous weight that increased as time went on. The formation of coal may be studied even at this day, for it is now going on, by visiting and examining the great peat beds that are found in various parts of the world. It is well known that peat is used as a fuel by many people, especially the peasantry of the old countries. If peat is pressed to a sufficient degree of hardness, it burns in a manner not unlike some forms of coal. Peat is a vegetable formation and has been formed by the rank growth of various kinds of vegetation in swampy places. Of course, it lacks the purity of the coal that was formed during the Carboniferous Age because of the much slower growth of vegetation now than during that time, and the opportunity that peat bogs offer for an intermixture of earthy with the vegetable matter. The fact that we find the imprint of trees and ferns and other vegetable growth of tropical varieties, as well as the fossils of reptiles, embedded in the coal measures, proves that at one time this stratum was at the land surface of the earth. We also find that all of the formations of the secondary and tertiary periods are on top of the coal, and this shows that after the age of rank vegetable growth there was a sinking of the earth in many places far down into the ocean, so that vast layers of rock formed on top of these beds of vegetable matter. In England great chalk beds crop out in cliffs on the southern coast, and as we have seen, these chalk rocks are largely made up of the shells of marine animals. London stands on a chalk bed from 600 to 800 feet thick. Indeed, England has been poetically called Albion, or White Land, from this appearance of her coast. All of the great chalk beds were formed ages after the coal beds, as the latter are found in the upper strata of the Paleozoic period. A study of these strata will show that there are many layers of coal strata varying in thickness and separated by layers of shale and sandstone. How the shale and sandstone layers are formed will be the subject of a future chapter. From the position that the coal measures occupy, being entirely under the secondary and tertiary formations, it will be observed that they are very old. 
If we should examine a piece of ordinary bituminous coal, we should find that there are lines of cleavage in it parallel to each other, and that it is an easy matter to separate the lump on these lines. If we examine the outcrop of a coal bed, we will find that these lines of cleavage are horizontal. This indicates that the great bulk of vegetable matter of which the coal formation is made up has been subjected to tremendous pressure during a long period of time. If we further examine the structure of a body of coal, we find the impressions of limbs and branches, as well as the leaves of trees and various kinds of plants. We shall further find that these impressions lie in a plant in the same direction as the line of cleavage. This is a point to be remembered, as it helps to explain the nature and structure of other formations than those of coal. Not only are leaves and branches of vegetable matter found, but fossils of reptiles, such as live on the land. Sometimes there is found the fossil of a great tree trunk standing in an erect position, with its roots running down into the rock below the coal bed, while the trunk extends upward entirely through the coal and high up into other strata. All of these facts lead us to the firm conclusion that when the trees were grown that formed these beds, they were above the surface of the ocean. This, taken in connection with the fact that the vegetable fossils that are found indicate a tropical growth of great size, drives us to the conclusion that the climate at the time these coal measures were formed was much warmer than it is now. As already remarked, this extra warmth came from the earth itself before it had cooled down to its present temperature, rather than from the heat of the sun. There is nothing inconsistent in the thought that the sun may have been warmer in a former age than now. We may conceive that the earliest coal formations took place when the land stood above the surface of the water, and that the conditions were favorable for a rapid and luxuriant growth of vegetation. After this had gone on for a very long period of time, by some convulsion of nature, the land surface was submerged under the ocean when other mineral substances were deposited on top of this layer of vegetable growth, which hardened into a rock formation. At a later period, the earth was again elevated above the surface of the water, and the same process of growth and decay was repeated. These oscillations of the earth up and down occurred at enormously long intervals, until all of the various coal strata with their intermediate formations were completed. After this, we must suppose that the whole was submerged to a great depth and for a very long period of time, because of the great number and various kinds of rock formations laid down by water that lie on top of the coal measures. This tremendous weight, as it was gradually building up, subjected these vegetable strata to an inconceivable pressure. In some places this pressure was much greater than in others, which undoubtedly is one of the reasons why we find such differences in the structure and quality of coal. There were no doubt many other reasons for differences, one of them being the character of the vegetable growth out of which they were formed. Again, in some parts of the world these coal strata may have been subjected to a considerable degree of heat, which would change the structure of the formation, and in some cases drive off the volatile gases. One can easily imagine that heat was thus a factor in the formation of what is known as anthracite coal, so much less gaseous than the bituminous kinds. The anthracite beds seem to be denser and of a more homogeneous character. 
The lines of cleavage are not as prominent, but there are the same evidences of vegetable origin that we find in the bituminous formations. It will be seen from what has gone before that coal was first wood, but wood is a product of sunshine. Thus the sun was the architect and builder of the trees and plants that were finally hermetically sealed under the great earth strata. The sun gathered up the material and set the forces in play which made the chemical combinations of the various elements in nature that enter into vegetable growth. After the lapse of untold ages of time, these great beds of stored-up sun energy were discovered by man, and their contents are dragged out to the earth's surface to warm our houses, to drive the machinery of our factories, to send the locomotives flying across the continents, and the steamships over the oceans. So important has this article become that if any one nation could control the output it would be able to paralyze all the navies and the manufacturing of the world. If the coal of the world should become exhausted, we should be confronted with a great problem. Now, fortunately for us, this is a problem that will have to be solved by the people of some future age, as the growth of wood will scarcely keep pace with the consumption of fuel. By that time, the genius of man will have devised an economical means of storing the energy of the sunbeams directly for the purposes of heat, light, and power. End of chapter 3. Recording by Don Evans. www.donmevans.com.